You can open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We will pick up where we left off last week and be focusing on verses 24 through 29 of John chapter 20 here today. And so at this time, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me and we'll read verses 24 through 29 together and then pray and begin working through it. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this time and for Your Word. Father, I thank You for the great privilege that it is to proclaim Your Word to others. And yet, O God, it is a terrifying thing. Father, I ask that You would give grace now, that You would help us to understand these words. Lord, that You would meet with me in a supernatural way. Oh God, I am completely dependent upon You. We all are. Father, I pray that You would guard me from misspeaking. Oh Father, shut my mouth. Don't let me entertain a wrong thought even for a moment. Yet, Father, I do pray for boldness and authority. Oh, Father, you know, even in my heart, there are times whenever I pray these things to you week after week, and I never want them to grow cold or disingenuous. Lord, I do truly want your power manifested as only you can. Father, I pray that your people would be encouraged, that you would meet with them, even as we see in this text, you meeting with another one you loved who was struggling Father, I ask that this time would be for your glory, that you would get all the glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin, the title of this message is, Blessed are the believing. Blessed are the believing. Taken straight from what Jesus says at the close of our thoughts in verse 29, He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So there is a, it's not really a, a call that if you want to be blessed, then you have to just believe. But the idea is that it's a state or condition of being or having been blessed by God or those who believe. 
but we'll get into that more towards the end. I want to start by just kind of rehashing a little bit from last week. Last week, we were looking at Jesus' first public appearance to the gathered assembly, to the disciples. We saw before he'd met individually with Mary Magdalene, at least. But the first time Jesus appears, risen from the dead, to the disciples last week. And we were considering in that picture last week, God's gracious dealings with the disciples. You remember they were terrified. They were locked in the upper room because they were afraid of the Jews. And Jesus, we saw him come to them, proclaim and speak peace to them, says to them, "My," he says, peace be with you. And then he immediately showed them his scars, showed them the grounds of that peace. And that was our primary consideration last week. But essentially what we were looking at was Jesus dealing with his people as a group. Did you see that in the text? There's not any one individual that's drawn out or focused upon in the message last week. Verses 19 through 23 is primarily a focus on the group and everyone who made up that group. And God has often been pleased to minister to his people collectively. Even as we've seen, you can look and consider the history of the children of Israel and God's general dealings with the group or group of people. Or even in the history of the church, you could look at periods of revival when God would do something big and he wouldn't just do it to one person. He would do it to many people at the same time and have a, a dealing with a group of people whom he manifested himself to. And there are wonderful blessings in the fact that God deals with people generally in the context of groups, collectively. And one might be this. And these are just some preliminary thoughts to hopefully drive home the significance of what's going on with Thomas here. Consider it this way. When we come together in a group of God's people, what are some things that we see? We see each other's successes or gains, advancements, growth. But we also see each other's failures. And so whenever we're dealt with collectively in this way, if you're one who maybe you have the idea that you're pretty worthless as it relates to the kingdom of God, you're rather unimportant. You don't have anything much to offer. Maybe you think that you haven't grown very much in the Christian life. You don't have that much scripture memorized. If the words weren't on the screen, you wouldn't know the songs because you haven't sung them long enough. Whatever attitude you have towards yourself, you don't pray probably as much as somebody else. So you're kind of insignificant in the kingdom of God. And yet you come together with other Christians in the group and you look at them and you see the growth and development in another and you think, well, God did that in them. And maybe at one time they were where I'm at now and there's hope to, to grow as we see the growth that God has brought about in others. Or maybe you're on the other side of that scenario. Maybe you're one who's looking at others and you're recognizing that there are those who maybe aren't as advanced or as far along in your understanding or Christian maturity. And you see them maybe at a point of weakness, maybe at a point where you have the privilege of ministering to their needs and their weakness and being reminded that you too were once in a less mature condition and that God has been faithful to bring you along. And so in a lot of these things, I just want to make the point that God's collective dealing with his people reminds us that we're all everyone who's in this family is here on the same grounds. We've all come to share in Christ. The benefit the disciples received last week is Jesus said to them all, peace be with you. And the grounds for the peace that all of them enjoyed was the scars that Jesus showed. them. We're all on ground level 
in the kingdom of God. We're only here not by our merits, but Christ's merits, His righteousness, and because of Him and Him alone. And that's the focus kind of of that group context. But here in our text this week, we come to have our attention and our focus narrowed down to one individual, namely Thomas. And so while God is pleased to minister to and to deal with people in the group setting, He's also interested in the individuals. And it's kind of a back and forth as we're going to consider this week because you do have Jesus meeting with the group and then you have Jesus meeting and with the group but primarily ministering to the one disciple. And the context, we're going to be considering the special benefits that there are in the gathered assembly of God's people and Jesus manifesting Himself to His people when they come together. But then also His interest and investment in the individuals whether they're gathered together or not. And so we have both of these realities before us. But God is seen in our verses to be specifically interested in Thomas. And so I just want to stop for a second and ask this. Have you ever considered that God is interested in you as an individual? It's easy. We come together. We sing songs. We have things we talk about. We have scriptures we read together. We hear the same messages, perhaps, and you look around and you see yourself probably as a part of this group or this church. But do you realize that God looks at you individually? He sees you individually. This is both a very convicting thing and it's also a very comforting and encouraging thing. You know, I find a lot of times that people, they like to go and be involved in churches with very large numbers because they can kind of slip into the crowd and be lost and not have very much attention on them. They can just go and check their religious box and then leave when it's over and not really have to deal with anybody because there's not an intimate relationship. But God is certainly interested in dealing with individuals such as we see in Thomas. And, you know, one of the most tragic things about the country that we live in, and I mean this with all with all sincerity, is that people have a tendency to be so self-focused and me-centered that they're often prone to not think about anyone else. That's one of the states of the nation in which we live. We're very individual-based. Very, It's personal sovereignty, individual rights. Very, There are some good aspects to this, but one of the, the downfalls of this kind of thinking is we're often prone to think more about ourselves than others. But in this instance, looking at the interaction between Jesus and Thomas... It's vitally important that we come to see ourselves individually before God. And so I ask, what is it that we know about this individual Thomas? If we're going to get a grasp on him, what is it that we know about him? Well, scripturally, there's not an awful lot that we do know about Thomas. Just about every one of you says, well, Thomas was a doubter. And as a matter of fact, that's in our text today. Very good. Well, there's not a whole lot that's said to us about Thomas. We really have two primary things we find out specifically about Thomas in the Scriptures. Just about every other time you find Thomas, he's in a list of names of the disciples or apostles that are given. There are a couple of things we find, though. Do you remember this back from John 11, verse 16? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. You remember that? We, we might think, well, Peter's the bold one. Peter's the one who's saying, well, I'll die with you, Lord. Well, Thomas did too. Thomas had this firm conviction, this understanding and willingness to die with his Lord. Thomas was a committed and devout disciple of Christ. He was one of the twelve, and we know that only one of the twelve would be lost. Only Judas. 
So Thomas, we're talking about a true, genuine, converted follower of Christ. You remember what Jesus said back in John 13 about the disciples? He says, you're already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. You're already been made clean. You're, you don't need to be clean. You're already saved. Except for, except for Judas. Well, Thomas was in that number. So Thomas is a converted person in our text. And that's going to be very relevant as we move forward. Thomas is known by many, as I say, as doubting Thomas. And especially in light of the scriptures we're in today. But I argue that he was most certainly born again and secure in Christ. Thomas was not going to be lost. And I say all these things for a very important reason. What is it that we're going to learn here in our text today about Thomas? Initially, we're told that Thomas was not with the others when Jesus first appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas wasn't with them, we found out. Now we find, so the others have come to him and said, we have seen the Lord. First thing to notice about this is the other disciples appear to have a great deal of love for Thomas. You can almost imagine these other disciples and their great excitement. The next time they saw him going to him and saying, Thomas, brother, listen, we've seen the Lord. There's an encouragement and excitement in it. Suppose, suppose you and I here right now at this very moment were to have some significant historic manifestation of the spirit of God in Christ. So that all of us were so caught up with the glory of God in Christ that we were so consumed by it that our lives were permanently and forever changed. And this entire town and community was changed. Would we not go immediately to others in the assembly who are gone due to procedures or traveling or something else and say, you got to listen to what the Lord did when we gathered on Sunday. There's something supernatural that took place. We love them, so we want to relate to them what exactly we experienced and it would seem in this context that these disciples are doing the same thing they're excited are we this way toward our fellow christians you know it's kind of sad i guess you ever get around someone who's just been recently converted and they're so excited they're just bubbling over they can't wait to tell you what jesus has done for them and we kind of maybe as mature christians pat them on the head and say oh that's really nice but we're not, we're not going to get too carried away, are we? We're not going to be beside ourselves. We're not going to be improper. We're not going to get to a point that's maybe not as respectable or not, not as polite, not as calm. My question is, I just am struck by this question is, would you rather have a quiet, comfortable and proper, respectable Christianity? Is that really what we want? I mean, I find this, I was even just this week talking with Raina. What is it? What's the, the leading, the predominant issue, the predominant problem in the life of the modern church? And I, I use that term, I suppose, I mean genuinely. Real Christians, what is the issue? What's our problem? Well, some would say, well, there's a tendency towards a hypercharismania that leaves the truth of God's word and drifts off into some fantastic nonsense. On the other side, there would be those that would say, well, we're just so rigid and dry and correct but we never have any anticipation of the Spirit of God to do anything that we can't do ourselves. I suppose probably both of those things are true. These disciples are encouraged and excited and they go to tell someone else that they loved about something that sounds impossible. It sounds unlikely. My question is, are we those who are longing for God to move in such a way 
as ignites our passions, moves us emotionally, takes hold of our affections and stirs us towards a a reckless kind of abandonment for Christ that has the kind of impact on our world that this early church had upon theirs. I don't believe that the majority of us, and I hold myself to the same account, are living in this way with this kind of excitement. Now, am I reading into the text? Perhaps. But I know it must have been a pretty marvelous thing to behold. And I think there's probably more said about it than is even reported here. We see the disciples told him we've seen the Lord, but I think they probably told him some other things, as we'll see in the context. And you know, they must have known that Thomas might not believe them. You think they expected when they went to tell Thomas? I mean, think about this. Mary Magdalene comes and tells them they don't believe her. And so now they've seen for themselves, well, we were just not believing when someone else told us. So how likely is it that he won't believe us? And yet they still go and tell him. They reported it anyway. And what was his response? Thomas, it says in verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, one thing that I think is worth mentioning, and it's in keeping with last week's message, is this. That it would seem that these disciples, when they reported to Thomas and told them what had happened, it would seem that they specifically talked to him about the fact that Jesus had showed them his scars. Do you you see that in the text here? We're told, so the other disciples told him we've seen the Lord, but that's all we're told. Why am I jumping to this conclusion? Well, because Thomas here makes a special reference to the scars. Does it not follow, especially when we saw last week, Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. And then they're glad. We saw that last week. And now we're finding they said, we've seen the Lord. And then Thomas immediately begins talking about his hands and his side. Is it not likely that the disciples also reported exactly the grounds for which Jesus had spoken peace to them? It's very fitting if you read it that way in the context, and it seems extraordinarily likely that that is the case. They told Thomas they saw the Lord and the one thing about their vision of Christ, and I don't mean vision as though he weren't really there. He's raised from the dead. It's his physical body. Their sight of Jesus, I mean, the one thing that seems to have captivated them the most was the scars they they with it. They were withholding. They were viewing. They were seeing his scars. So he says that. There's something to observe. Another thing to remember about Thomas's response here is that he was not unconverted. I made this point in the beginning when he says that he will never believe. He was not saying that he didn't believe in Christ. Is that an odd thing for me to say? Thomas was a Christian here. Thomas was converted. He loved Jesus before this point. Whenever he's telling his fellow disciples until or unless I see his side and his nail holes, I will never believe it's not him saying it's not an indication to us that he was lost. He's not saying he didn't believe in Christ. He's specifically referring to Christ's resurrection from the dead. He's saying until I see this, I will not believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, does that sound like a contradiction to you? How is it that I could say that here we have a person who is saying very clearly that unless and until they see, they will never believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. How can I say that that person's a Christian? You know, at this church, we would maintain that 
believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a fundamental truth of Christian orthodoxy. We would say that if a person rejects the resurrection, that they're not a Christian at all. As a matter of fact, if you're here today and you think, well, okay, it's all nice. God loves, Jesus loves. Yeah, he died for my sins, but man, this resurrection stuff, I can't wrap my mind around that. And so I'm not really sure if that happened. So I'm really not going to believe that. If you reject the resurrection, there is no salvation for you whatsoever. And so I ask, am I contradicting myself and telling you that Thomas was a believer? Which is it? Are we today wrong in demanding that someone believe in the resurrection to be saved? Or was Thomas not a believer here? The answer is this, very simple. Thomas would go on to believe in the resurrection. He would not remain in this condition of error, of not understanding, not seeing, not believing. God was not done with him yet. You see, Jesus has already told us, as I mentioned, that Thomas has already been made clean by the word of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, my words, you're clean because of the word that I spoke to you. And further still, you're clean because of the cross I bore for you, Thomas. Thomas was already clean by those things. And just like every other true disciple. But Thomas would go on to have his understanding of the one he was trusting in deepened and developed. And so I put it this way to you. We are right in saying that you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to be saved. You must. Paul tells us very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, our faith is vain. There's no hope. There's no salvation apart from believing this. But here's the point. If someone rejects the resurrection, they're giving a strong evidence that they're not yet converted. But, but. If they are truly converted, the Spirit of God is going to give evidence of it, of their conversion by bringing them into a state of sound understanding. He will lead us to all truth. How many things were you wrong about when you were first converted? How many things did you not theologically grasp totally when you were first a Christian? Many, many, many things. How many things have you yet to grasp as a Christian? You see, I'm not saying that we call for an easy believism that denies core doctrines of the Christian faith. But what I am saying is that we're not saved by our right believing, but by what Christ accomplished. That was true for Thomas. And we see that he was genuinely a true disciple of Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world, and that he was not left in that wrong condition. He was brought along to a right understanding of the truth. So, in a lot of these things, we need to consider Thomas' statement further here. There are many things we can draw out of this, not just these realities. We would maintain that he was indeed saved at this point, and yet Thomas does illustrate for us perfectly the trouble with the unbelieving world. We see, though Thomas is a believer who's about to have his world rocked with understanding, that he represents for us what the unbelieving world is like. And you know what else? He represents and illustrates for us our trouble as Christians a lot of the time, too. How so? He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Now, I want to do something that may shock you a little bit, not for the sake of shocking you, but it's just something that's true. Before we dissect Thomas's problem, because there are many problems here, let us acknowledge what is of value in his response. So essentially what Thomas is telling them is this. 
that he wasn't going to take their word for it. The disciples come and say, we've seen the Lord risen from the dead. Thomas says, I'm not just going to believe it just because you said it. Now, that's something of value. If anybody in this room right now or anyone who listens online is prepared to believe that something in the Bible is true because I say it or any other man says it, that's wrong. And if you tell me you believe it because I said it, I'm going to be inclined to doubt whether you're trusting Christ at all. You don't believe this because a man tells you it's true, but because God tells you it's true. And so there is some value in recognizing Thomas's unwillingness to believe just because someone else told it to him. And as we're considering every individual, Thomas is the individual we're looking at, every individual person must be confronted by the truth of Christ, by the Holy Spirit for themselves. And I say not only is this commendable, it is commendable, it's also absolutely unavoidable. What do I mean by that? It's absolutely unavoidable that any person is going to be saved or truly believe what they find in this book just because someone else, human being speaking, tells them it's true. No one will. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither indeed can he. A natural mind will not receive these things. Even the converted mind who loves Christ is not going to understand the truth of God's word apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I say it's not only commendable, it's absolutely unavoidable that he wouldn't believe until he had it shown to him in a different way. This is true for the converted and the unconverted. As to Thomas's problem, though, I believe it is less of a problem of doubt that's what we call him, Doubting Thomas, and he is doubting. But I think the problem here is less a problem of doubt and more a problem of pride. Pride. Why do I say pride here with Thomas? Essentially, doubting truth is always born out of arrogance or pride. If someone tells you that something's true and it is in fact true, what is it that's going to cause you to not believe the truth? You think you know better. You think you have some grasp of truth that they don't have. And if they had your grasp of truth, then they wouldn't be believing and saying this thing that you don't think is true. Not believing and doubting, ultimately, especially when it comes to truth, is related to arrogance and pride. How so? Thomas says, unless I see his hand in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Do you see the emphasis here? Do you see what Thomas is saying? Essentially, Thomas is setting himself up here as the chief arbiter. Thomas is going to be the one to decide what's true and what isn't. And truth is going to be ultimately determined by Thomas's own cognitive reasoning. If he can't quantify it with evidence and prove it by his own discernment, then he says, I'm not going to receive it. If I can't come to this conclusion by my own reason, my own logic, my own examination of the evidence, and I'm not going to believe it. And I can tell you with authority, even at this point, and this is where we're going, that if you demand evidence or a sign, isn't that a common theme in John's Gospel? If you demand evidence in order to believe, you're believing on the wrong basis. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says at the very end, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. There's nothing special about seeing something that you've seen and believing that. But those who have faith, according to what they have not seen, at least not with physical eye, that there is an understanding in the soul that's needed. Well, that's where we're going. That's where we're moving. But 
Let's slow down for just a moment, shall we? It is commendable. And we do see Thomas doing that. There is value in his questioning, his asking and wanting to be convinced for himself. The problem comes in whenever he sets himself up as the authority, as the final judge. And is that not the problem of so many in the world? That we want to be the final judge over what is true. I want to be clear about something. Thomas is calling for evidence. This is not a rejection of scientific observation. Surely it is of great value to us for us to measure the world around us with thought, observation, and examination. The trouble, it seems, comes when we assume that we ourselves can arrive at some ultimate truth from our observations. As though we had the power or the right to decide eternal truths with our own finite abilities. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's not wrong for us to examine the world and try to come to conclusions. God has ordered the world in a way that we can measure. We can do science because of God. You remember what Brother Paul Wilson told us in our conference. We can measure the world because God has made a measurable world. And He's made patterns and seasons and cycles we can look at. So I'm not discrediting our, our desire or the goodness of measuring our world and applying ourselves to understand it the best that we can. We can learn many wonderful things when we apply logic and reason we develop hypotheses and we measure them through experiments, through history. We can do these things, as I say, because God has ordered the world in an ordered way. But here's the question for you to really chew on for a moment. Are you really going to risk your soul to your own ability to interpret reality? This is where the pride and arrogance comes in. Again, I'm saying Thomas is saying this as a converted person who's defaulting back to the Standard human attitude towards God. I'm going to judge God. I'm going to be the one to decide if this is true or not. That's what Thomas is reverting back to in this moment. And you know, that's a common theme. We see the other disciples, the fishermen. They're in a state of doubt and discouragement. And so they go fishing again. They revert back to what they were before. As a Christian, that's surely what we all do. We go to those things, those creature comforts that we found encouragement from in the past. In our moments of difficulty. My point is this, that Thomas is making himself the deciding authority. And I am arguing it is a dangerous thing to risk your own soul to your own ability to interpret reality. You know, it was, it's not directly related, but it made me think of the quote on last week's bulletin. The quote last week said this, something to the effect, I'll paraphrase it for you, that man's free will is not even able to cure him of a toothache. And yet he thinks it's going to be able to cure his soul or a hurt toe or some minor issue that we think ourselves so great. And yet in the grand scheme, we really have a extremely finite and limited abilities. And in this context, let me put it to you this way. In order for you to be able to apply logic, reason, examine evidence to know everything as truly as you can know it scientifically, you would have to know every detail in the entire existed universe. Everything in existence you would have to know and be able to measure for you to make yourself the ultimate decider of what you're going to trust, what you're going to believe in, what you're going to say is true. If there's any unknown detail that you don't have grasp of, you can't say anything authoritative about reality. If you don't know everything, and can you really even know anything? And this is the argument of the relativists and the progressives and the liberal Christians. Well, we can't really know. And so we throw our hands up in the air. Well, here's my argument. 
We can know. Not within ourselves, though. Not within our own powers of observation. The authority of one who's spoken to us who does know. And that's really the problem here. Consider this way. Think on it this way. Do you think that your mind can comprehend God speaking the world into existence out of nothing? Ex nihilo. God said, let there be, and then there was. How did that happen? Well, I don't have a clue, but that's what God says. And I can't even for a moment begin to wrap my mind around what that must have involved. And he did it perfectly with perfect wisdom and insight and order. And I can't even think about the smallest details in, in reality. And yet I'm going to come to some eternal conclusions about God and about Christ and what's possible and what isn't. How can I hope to even know anything truly and fully? Can my fallible mind conceive of what it means that not only has he made everything? Think of this. The scripture says in Hebrews that Jesus is upholding the universe with the word of his power. Why did the universe not explode into oblivion as he died upon the cross? How can the one who made and upholds all things die and yet all things stay together? His grasp on the created world is limitless. His power never ceases. It never ends. How can these things be? I don't know. It's beyond me. It's not beyond him. You see, the point I'm making here is there's arrogance in a world that looks around and thinks I can come to some ultimate conclusions about things that I can't even fully explain to you. But I'm going to tell you how much I know and what I don't know. I'm going to examine the evidence and say, well, if all of the evidence points to what I think, if it convinces me, well, then we'll say it's true. It's arrogance in man. Should I even mention our inability to delve into the infinite depths of the triune relationship in the Godhead? For the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God and man, truly, at one and the same time. These things are so far beyond us. And yet, we have one who these things are not beyond. And the arrogance of the world is that we think we know so much. The reality is we've barely even scratched the surface of the depths of what God has created, much less God Himself. And even if we were somehow able to arrive at a proper understanding of truth, even if we were to arrive at that, It's only going to be revealed to us by the one who actually knows and upholds it. So consider again, he says, so that's the problem. Thomas is making himself the authority. He's going to examine the evidence. He's going to tell us what's true about it. Well, I want to consider one last error that may be a little bit closer to home, because I imagine most of you are sitting there saying, yeah, I don't know how God did everything. And I trust he's the one who's got to tell me I'm not going to sit in judgment over God. Maybe the atheist will, but I won't. And yet there is an application to us that touches very close to home to every one of us in what's revealed in Thomas here. The final error is this. Thomas gives God an ultimatum. Unless Thomas sees and touches, he will never believe. Now, he doesn't say it to God. He says it to the other disciples. But in this context, what really is the difference? Giving God an ultimatum. Unless God does this, unless God convinces me, unless God gives me this thing, I'm not going to fill in the blank. Giving God an ultimatum. Or if God were to imagine the most horrible thing you can think of, that you would be tempted to sit in judgment over God and say, he's not God anymore if he does that. 
because I'm going to judge and criticize him. That we would give ultimatums and sit in authority over God. You see, this, I believe, touches more than anything the pride which under, undergirds Thomas's doubt. Thomas is doubtful because he's prideful. That's his problem. And so my question is this. <clears throat> How often do we consider our own lives or understanding of truth and decide that we're going to refuse what God has asked of us until God does what we've asked of Him? And don't be quick to dismiss this. This happens to every one of us probably every day in some form or fashion. Think of it this way. Just one realm in which this probably comes out as much as any is in the realm of relationships. Relationships. We'll get so bogged down in the failures of others that they're not doing what we want them to do that we will refuse to treat them the way in which God has commanded us to do. We can't even deny this. Not even for a moment. Whether you're talking about as a husband, well, my wife isn't submissive. Love her sacrificially, lay down your life, take care of her, treat her with gentleness and respect. But she's not submitting to me. That's not what God told you to worry about. You are commanded by God to love her this way. Our wives, my husband, he's not a good leader. He's not consistent. I don't trust him. I don't think he's doing what's right. He's in sin. God says, respect, submit, love, honor your husband. These things don't change. And so as though I were to say to God, God, I can't do what you're telling me to do because other people or circumstances won't allow for me to. God, here's your ultimatum. Until you fix them, you're not going to get out of me what you've told me to do. We wouldn't put it that way, but that's exactly what we do. Giving God ultimatums. Or siblings. <laughs> children. My children, listen. How many times whenever you're told... Why did you do this? Why did you mistreat your sibling? Because they fill in the blank. Justification and excuse. I did wrong because they did wrong. And until they do right by me, God, I'm not going to do right by them. Giving God an ultimatum. God, until you fix them, I'm not going to change. That's not exactly what's going on with Thomas, but you can see the principle in it. Until something changes in my circumstance, which allows for me to measure things to add up the way I say they should add up. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to do it. <coughs> We're quick to blame others rather than examining ourselves. Which again, this brings us back to the point from the beginning, which is vital. Considering yourself as an individual before God. God takes an interest in individuals. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight. <clears throat> and that creature, the word creature there, it's a reference to all people primarily, but nothing is hidden from God. But all people, none are hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Now, the idea is very simple here. This idea of being naked and exposed. What do you mean? think that means? It's not some junior high boy writing this, having some perverse thought in his mind. When he says naked here, there's nothing hiding you. And he even reiterates it with exposed. Everything's revealed. You can't hide behind anything, including the actions of other people. You can't say, well, they did this to me, so that's how I responded. Or I didn't have enough evidence, God, I'm going to blame you. No, you have nothing you can hide behind. I, this may be a rabbit trail, but I think it's relevant. You know, this week I watched an interview between Johnny Carson and Billy Graham. Fascinating. 
And, you know, Billy was doing pretty good. He was talking about sin and talking about Christ. And it was wonderful. He even told Johnny, Johnny, you're a sinner too. Pretty good. But then he got to this point where he had this strange notion, this idea. He said, well, it doesn't really apply to those people in other parts of the world that have never heard the gospel because they can't really be blamed. Well, that falls into this category, too. Even Romans 1 tells us they have a knowledge of God through creation itself. So no one's without excuse you got, you're naked. you got nothing to hide behind. Nothing you can put in front of God and say, I didn't know better or there wasn't enough evidence or something didn't convince me. No, there's nothing. You're going to give an account to God and you're going to give an account for your life and you're not going to have your spouse, your parents, your siblings, or anybody else, your church. I'm not going to be standing beside you defending you when you stand before God. Nor would I. Only Jesus can do that. The point is, we as individuals are going to face Him alone. <clears throat> Why? Why am I making these points in this way? Well, just hold on and see. This is the problem. This is what's revealed and evidenced in Thomas's attitude. <clears throat> Next we see this. We'll see the cure in a little bit. Verse 26, eight days later, His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you Now, I don't want to linger on this, but it is very helpful and relevant to us today to consider this. What does this mean eight days later? Eight days later, what he's saying is the following Sunday. Jesus rose on Sunday when he says eight days later, it's Sunday. Now somebody says, well, how can that be? Eight days later, wouldn't that have been the following Monday? Well, in this particular form of literature and way of speaking, you counted the current day. Have you ever wondered about this? Jesus died on Friday, rose on Sunday. He's in the grave three days. Saturday, Sunday. But it's exactly the same thing. They counted the day. So when He died on Friday, and they say that He rose three days later, you count Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In the same way, if they said eight days later, what they meant is exactly one week later. So this was the following Sunday. Why do I make this point? Why am I emphasizing this? Well, I'll make this point without spending an awful lot of time on it, just to be confronted by the fact that all of Thomas's doubt and difficulty, now I'm not blaming Thomas. It's not like Jesus said, hey, y'all need to obey me and meet in this upper room and be gathered there and you're waiting on me, you're worshiping me, you're having church. And Thomas was disobedient. That's not what happened. They're afraid up there. Here's the principle, though. The principle is, Thomas's doubt and difficulty can be immediately understood as a result of him not being gathered with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. This isn't being coming up with some legalistic idea to shame somebody. It's just an observation. It's just a reality. If Thomas had been there the Sunday before, he would not be in a position of doubt and arrogance right now. He would have seen the Lord. Is that not true? He would have been there. Now, I'm not saying, Thomas, I'm going to grab you by the scruff and say, unless you come, whenever I say come, you're going to be in trouble with me. I'm saying Thomas missed out on something. Thomas missed out. So my point in making this, and this is all I'll say about this, in an attempt hopefully to woo your heart, is that when you don't gather with God's people as they meet, you're going to miss out on things which are afforded to the gathering. Whenever you avoid or you're not present, 
Now, I would go even further. I wouldn't say if you're not here on Sunday at this time during this service, you're going to miss out. I would say anytime the church gathers together, whether prayer meetings or celebrations, get togethers of any kind. If you're not with us, you're likely to miss out on some stuff and it could cause some really hard things in your life. The more that you're away from the people of God. Now, I'm not coming up with an extra biblical law. I'm observing reality in the life of a Christian who suffered because they didn't gather when the others gathered. And not as a command, but they were together and he missed out. And so you apply that to yourself in whichever way is right. We see in this eight days later, his disciples were together again inside. Thomas was with them. They had the doors locked once again. And Jesus came supernaturally once again and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, the next thing is to be encouraged by is. All of my ranting and raving about how you're going to miss things if you're not here when people gather. And then we see, well, Jesus was faithful to minister to Thomas in the exact same way the next week when he was there. So here's two encouragements built into one. When Thomas did get back to the gathering, when he did come back with the other people, he, he was encouraged. But here's the other thing. Jesus seems to take a specific interest in Thomas. I believe Jesus would have appeared. I know that he would have appeared to the disciples here, whether Thomas was with them or not. But the focus of our verses here before us now does seem to emphasize and indicate that Jesus purpose for Thomas in this gathering was rather unique. There's a direct engagement. He's the one he specifically talks to. And so I say again, as though um, even though Thomas had missed out on the previous appearance, what does Jesus say to him whenever he's here now? Peace be with you. Is that not exactly the thing that he said to the other disciples the week before? He ministers to them the first words out of his mouth as they see him risen from the dead are peace be with you. That's exactly what he says to Thomas here. And it's not just some casual greeting. There is a heart level encouragement from the Lord to this individual named Thomas, who was in a position of doubt and arrogance and difficulty. The Lord ministers to him gives the same message. Verse 27, we look on to the next thing he says. First, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas in verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, this is also an encouraging thing. We see Jesus here ministering specifically to Thomas's need. But I'm going to argue not maybe in the way you might think at first glance. Jesus knows the details of Thomas's doubt, arrogance and unbelief. He knows it intimately and he sees it and he calls specific attention to it. He says to him, Thomas, come here. You've made this claim. You'll not believe. You'll never believe until this, this and this. What is it you think Jesus is doing here? You see, Jesus is revealing to us and to Thomas that he was fully aware of what Thomas had said and of the attitude which he had taken. I'm just compelled. I just almost sometimes we live as though we'll say things and do things almost as if the Lord doesn't see it. I mean, is there any other excuse for sin than that? If I lived with the constant awareness of God watching me, how could I ever sin in light of that knowledge? But we push him away so that we can do what we want to do at certain times. Lord, help us. But here, Jesus, he heard and saw Thomas. The moment they're telling him Jesus is raised from the dead, 
Thomas is saying, I don't believe and I'll never believe. Jesus was watching. He's letting him know that. He saw what he said and he heard what he said. Now, this is not to be misunderstood as though Jesus was catering to Thomas' prideful demands. It's not like Jesus is sitting there saying, well, you know, Thomas said he'd never believe unless he did this. So I'm going to go and let him do it just to make sure he believes. That's not at all the picture. Jesus is actually rebuking and challenging him with what he's doing here. And you know how I can say that? Because Thomas doesn't put his hand in his scars. He doesn't put his finger in the holes. Jesus saying this challenges and confronts him. He sees the risen Lord and he's challenged in his heart, in his soul. And he's reminded of this, this one before me, he's God. He knows my heart. He knows the words that I've said, the things that I've done. He knows everything. And he believes not on the basis of the evidence he demanded. You see this in the text. He doesn't actually get to fulfill it. Jesus challenges him by saying that. And he reminds us of this. Whatever reasons you might have in your mind, which are causing you doubt and discouragement, you know, Jesus is aware of them. Isn't that a temptation? Does the Lord even does he even does he even care about how I'm feeling right now? Absolutely, he does. And he sees every thought you have, every word you utter. He sees and knows and he's aware of it. And contrary to what you might think, those things aren't your real problem. It wasn't Thomas's real problem. Having see, here's the thing, Thomas. <clears throat> here's what's so beautiful. Thomas doesn't come to a position of believing based on putting his hands and his fingers into it. That's what he thought. That's what he said. But that's not really what he needed. He needed something on the inside, something at the heart level to change, something that was given to him through the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that you and I need. We think if I only had this or if they only did that or if this changed in my life, then I would have a right attitude towards God. And the real truth is we need God himself to minister to our hearts. Because we, in the moment of our discouragement, aren't believing God and his promises. And of course, we see Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. <clears throat> An instant, the word of Christ turns Thomas's pride and doubt. And it's done away with. Is this not something supernatural? I mean, could you imagine almost it'd be kind of laughable to imagine Thomas saying, wait a minute, Who, did you guys hire an actor? Come here, let me check out those hands inside. The investigation's over when Jesus speaks to him. There's no more examination of evidence. The risen Lord's talking to him and he knows it's God, my Lord and my God, the one who reads and knows everything about me is before me. I actually heard of a Jehovah Witness one time saying that Jesus here was a spirit. He wasn't really a human being raised from the dead. He was a spirit risen here. He wasn't really God. And they tried to say that Thomas was like blaspheming, scared, saying, oh, my God, because he was scared that he appeared in the house this way through the door. Ridiculous. That is blasphemy to even suggest such a thing. Thomas saw his God and he's worshiping. He's overcome by a strong emotion. At the supernatural revelation of Christ's word. And I say again, he was overwhelmed and came to believe without the evidence he had once demanded. And I say Thomas's heart <clears throat> has been subdued by Christ. And so I wonder, <clears throat> excuse me, I wonder as an application, do you have need for Christ to minister to the doubt 
or pride in your heart today? I praise Him that He doesn't need me. I don't have to go around and draw up and show you all the different ways that your heart is living in a kind of arrogant attitude towards God. I don't have to do that. The Holy Spirit's more capable than I of doing such work. But do you need to hear Him saying to you as an individual, peace be with you? Is there a restless anxiety in you because you really are demanding God to do something in your life to convince you you can really trust Him? Is it evidence-based? Is it saying, God, until you do this, I'm not going to believe or trust you? You see, it's not a matter of physical evidence or having your demands met. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, If you believe because you've seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, several things in this verse. For one, Jesus is not delegitimizing him seeing and his believing. You know, it's a biblical notion in the New Testament <clears throat> that these apostles were eyewitnesses. As a matter of fact, Thomas, in order to be an apostle, had to see Christ raised from the dead physically. And so this is not unimportant that he sees this evidence. But here's the point. <clears throat> the substance of what's taking place here is not Thomas having his demand met, but it's having his heart opened up to the reality of Christ's resurrection, coming to know and believe. And the point he's emphasizing here to any of you who would say to God, until you do fill in the blank with whatever expectation you have for God that's going to meet your quota, are you going to believe without having seen? You know, there's something, if anyone says, I've got to see Jesus in a physical sense, you know, the eyes we see with are called the eyes of faith. That we don't see with physical eyes. We don't see some physical manifestation of Jesus in the way that we did. And someone could argue and say, well, how can you say that biblically? How can you say that we're not going to see Jesus in a physical sense? Well, we will whenever He returns and comes again. But Paul actually said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we see Him after the flesh no more. We don't see Him risen in the flesh anymore. We believe. By faith we see Him risen. We see Him raised. But here's my point to you. We have an example of something Christ shows us here with Thomas. And this is almost mind-blowing. Here we have the God of the universe who doesn't have to prove anything to any one of us, and yet He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. And He actually cares about us and loves us. <clears throat> he ministers to Thomas here in a unique way. And He does present evidence to him, but it wasn't the evidence that actually convinced him. This is a fascinating thing to me. Almost we get the idea sometimes that God's at our beck and call and He's got to do what we say He needs to do and that's it. Well, what we're reminded of in this verse, this closing thought, is that what is most needed in all of us is very simple, that we believe. And so I ask you as we move to close, what is it? What does it mean to believe? Especially in this context. What does it mean to believe not having seen? The title of this message is Blessed Are the Believing. Blessed are those who are in a state and condition of believing. That's a blessed situation to be in. So what does it mean to believe not according to what you've seen? Does that mean that our faith is blind and stupid and that we have no logical or coherent thought behind what we believe? Are we just believing in belief? Are we just hoping in hope? Is there substance to it? 
What does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed? What does that mean? What is that telling us? Well, this is what this is saying. The substance of our faith, the substance, the heart and center of what we believe is a person. It is a person. His name is Jesus. And that's not just a cliche. Thomas believed in Jesus already, and he was only the person of Christ who was going to open up and reveal to him that which was limiting him and causing him to doubt. He needed Christ. He needed Christ Himself to show up and engage and minister to His soul. So what does it mean to be in a position of being blessed in your believing, not having seen? What does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God so reveals to you the truth of this book that you're able to believe it. And whenever the things in this book contradict what you think, you're brought to a place of submitting to this book and not demanding that it's got to meet your expectations, but realizing, no, you've got to meet the book's expectation because the book was written by God, that you're accountable to God, not the other way around. Believing means that you trust what God says and not just your own perception or your own expectations of what should be in reality. And there's only one way that that ultimately happens. You know this? Only one way. I said already, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Can't, doesn't, won't, won't believe. No natural person in their state that they're born into is ever going to believe the Gospel. They're never going to believe the Word of God. They may say come to agree with some things in it, but they're not actually going to trust in Christ and be saved. They can't. They're spiritually discerned, these things. And so what do I say to us in our positions here and now? Well, let me put it to you this way. The most essential need that you have, and I don't take this for granted, is that you are given eyes to see Christ by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. That you would come to believe on Him from the heart, which only God can do that in you. I can't do that. You can't do it in yourself. God must do a work in you. You see, even from the beginning of the Christian life, we are those who are not coming to God, making sure he fits our requirements. We are those who are coming dependent and submitted. I'm dependent on him to do this in me. I can't do this in me. He's got to do this in me. He's got to give me the humility to come in dependence to him. Everything comes from him. It starts with him. And so we're going to him, not with demands, but believing that's got to happen by God. You must be born again. You must be given eyes to see. And the charge is this. If that hasn't happened to you, what are you going to do? What, where are you going to go with your doubts or with your demands? Are you really prepared to stand before God in any circumstance? Can you imagine any context where you look at God and say, God, because you did this or you didn't do that, then I, I'm out. I'm no more. No, nope, no, nope, I can't follow you any longer. That whole mindset and frame of mind is sitting in judgment over the living God as though you and your puny mind knew better than he does. That's Thomas's problem. But the Lord corrects it and speaks peace to him. And this is what's so encouraging to me. You might imagine that what Thomas really needed was something grand, something special. Obviously, he's one who's not believing. The others are believing. He's a special case. He's doubting. He's a doubtful person. So he needs something more. What's so encouraging to me is, you know what you could boil it down to? You know what Jesus revealed and pressed to Thomas? 
I said it already, the exact same message that he gave during his entire life and ministry, the same message he gave the week before to the other disciples, the timeless, unchanging gospel that you can have peace with God through the scars of Jesus Christ, the one who bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That's what's displayed in this. How much of this is Thomas grasping? Well, I'll tell you, I think all he knew is, there's my Lord and my God. He's humbled on the spot. What's needed is that you would come to see the gospel. As a Christian, I find it so often, you know, Thomas, you know what he thought? I feel like there's such an open end to the applications here. Thomas thought, I know what I need. I need the evidence. That's what I need. You know how many Christians today, they think, well, I wish, wish I could hear a message on this or I could hear a thought about that or we could do this or we could have that. And we have all of these demands and expectations and if the gospel goes forth and that's all we hear, we go home dissatisfied and we think, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with him? When the real need is that we would have our hearts moved. His response to the message of the gospel, which is represented in the message of peace through scars, is the same message he needed. That's what you need. We go wrong if we think, well, I've got some real trouble in my life, so I need to move past the gospel and go find some other cure, some other tonic, some other fix. And you're going to continue to suffer aimlessly until you find your peace as it relates to his scars and his resurrection. My prayer is that as a church, that would be the thing that motivates us, that we would gather. I've said this a few times today. There is no command for us to gather on the first day in a specific way in the scriptures. There's not. But do you want to meet with Christ? Do you want Christ to minister to your needs? Do you want the Lord to manifest Himself, to speak peace to you, to remind you of His scars, to encourage your soul to do what only He can do? I'm not saying Jesus can't do this in your bedroom. He's done it for many people that way. What I'm saying is there does seem to be a biblical pattern of God ministering in a peculiar way to His people as we gather together. There's something significant. Far from me saying, be here for me, I'm saying, don't you want Him? Don't you want to worship with others who... Love Him. Do you know the closest physical reality to the body of Christ you will ever know is whenever you're with the body of Christ, the church? So I want us to be encouraged as a church to see that He takes an individual interest in individual people. But He calls upon us as individuals to come together in the group, to meet together, to encourage one another. And it doesn't take away from either. I pray that these things encourage you. And lastly, if you're not a believer, if you're one who's got demands for God, I tell you, repent. Believe and trust in the One who sees and knows everything about you. Believe in Jesus Christ and find that peace that He promises. That I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, You have been good to us. You've declared Your peace to us. And I praise You for that. Father, I ask that You would bring encouragement where it's needed, bring conviction where it's needed, bring salvation where it's needed. Father, I pray that You 
though we be uncomfortable and challenged. And Lord, all of these things, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would move. I praise you that your power and your moving is not dependent upon our abilities, our knowledge, our strengths. Lord, none of these things hinder you in the slightest from what you're pleased to do in your people. Father, I pray that these things would stay with us as we go forward. And I thank you for all that you've done in Jesus name. Amen.